So we'll get then into our final conversation of the day, which is going back to um, the case that South Africa has brought before the International Court of Justice and that's in The Hague and it's really over um, the war that is taking place in Gaza currently and we specifically want to zoom in on the issue of genocide and what constitutes or can um, you know, be defined as genocide. We've got uh, a number of guests that have done some research looking into how the ICJ has interpreted genocide in past cases, but also why does it seem to be such a complex issue? Listening to representatives from both sides, this is Israel and South Africa, one very much got a sense that, you know, while South Africa believes that, uh, you know, th- there's a clear definition of genocide which um, Israel has breached in its response, uh, Israel raised several issues and said that, you know, if this matter were to be class- classified as genocide, it would then be using the word loosely uh, because uh, it's supposed to have such a high bar in terms of classification. Let me invite onto the show Lene Engbo Giselle, who is an associate professor, uh, global political sociology at Roskilde University. Lynn, Lynn, good morning to you. Thank you so much for your time this morning. Good morning, Cathy, and thank you for having us. Kirsten Bree Carlson is an Associate Professor International Law, also at Roskilde University. Good morning, Kirsten. Good morning. So great to be here. Before we get into our conversation, I want to play just for context part of what came out of those arguments before the ICJ on what constitutes genocide. Uh, we'll kick it off with the South African representative, advocate Tembeka Ngugai Tobi, and that will be followed by Tal Becker, who made the argument for Israel. As recently as 7 January 2024, a video of a soldier was posted online where he boasts that the army had destroyed the entire village of Hibat Azar. For two weeks, he said, they had worked hard to bomb the village and executed their mandate. Any suggestion that senior politicians did not mean what they said, much less that the meaning was not understood by soldiers in Gaza, would be without any merit The scale of destruction in Gaza, the mass targeting of family homes and civilians, the war being a war on children, all make clear that genocidal intent is both understood and is being put into practice. The articulated intent is the destruction of Palestinian life in all its manifestations. The genocidal rhetoric is also commonplace within the Israeli Knesset. Members of the Knesset have repeatedly called for Gaza to be wiped out, flattened, erased, and crushed on all its inhabitants. They have deplored anyone feeling sorry for the uninvolved Gazans, asserting repeatedly that there are no uninvolved, that there are no innocents in Gaza, that the killers of the women and children should not be separated from the citizens of Gaza. The convention was set apart to address a malevolent crime of the most exceptional severity. We live at a time when words are cheap. In an age of social media and identity politics, the temptation to reach for the most outrageous term 
to vilify and demonize has become for many irresistible. But if there is a place where words should still matter, where truth should still matter, it is surely a court of law. The applicant has regrettably put before the court <clears throat> a profoundly distorted factual and legal picture. The entirety of its case hinges on a deliberately curated, decontextualized, and manipulative description of the reality of current hostilities. South Africa purports to come to this court in the lofty position of a guardian of the interest of humanity. But in delegitimizing Israel's 75-year existence in its opening presentation yesterday, that broad commitment to humanity rang hollow. And in its sweeping counterfactual description of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, it seemed to erase both Jewish history and any Palestinian agency or responsibility. Indeed, the delegitimization of Israel since its very establishment in 1948 in the applicant's submissions sounded barely distinguishable from Hamas's own rejectionist rhetoric. So those are just some of the arguments that have come before the ICJ. Let me go to my guests now. Lene, I'll, I'll kick it off with you. When we look at the Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide um, by the UN, that particular convention sets out mm -hmm. very clearly um, under Article 2 in about five different points what mm -hmm. the definition of genocide is. And yet we are having this debate on what the definition of genocide is. Where do the two sort of what is in the convention versus what we experience in reality, where does the gap exist? Why does there seem to be so much room for interpretation? Mm -hmm. Yes, thank you. Yes. Um, well, one of the things that make genocide very difficult to establish in a court of law, and perhaps aside from uh, what we as ordinary people think is genocidal is that um, it's not just about the actions that are committed, but it's also about the intention behind the actions that are committed. So it involves, um, you mentioned Article 2, it involves killing or inflicting serious bodily or mental harm, or it involves deliberately inflicting conditions, conditions of life that um, uh, that may bring about the destruction of the group. It also involves uh, measures preventing births or forcibly transferring children, but it doesn't have to involve all of these acts, but these are just uh, some of them. But then in addition to these acts, it has to also be proven that there's an intense intent to um, destroy the group in whole or in part. And often that is what is very difficult to establish because rarely do we have conflict parties or governments that um, announce an intention to, to commit genocide because it's seen as um, probably the worst thing that, that uh, a government uh, or a conflict party can carry out. Mm. So Kirsten, when it comes to motive then, 
what mm -hmm. would be the threshold that um, would be used to determine intention? Because I could well carry out a particular action with mm -hmm. an intention to do everything that is under Article 2, which is kill members of a group, cause serious bodily or mental harm, um, you know, um, deliberately inflict on the group conditions of life calculated uh, to bring its physical destruction. Um, I, I could deliberately um, take steps that have that effect, but come out and say that it is not my intention that all of this is happening. Yeah, thanks. It's a it's a good question. And this question of intent is really one of the, it, it's a hard question. It's an interesting question. And in what Lena and I wrote, the piece for the conversation, we're actually looking at um, an intervention that was made by countries, not in the South Africa case, but in another case, that really goes into a series of interpretations about how should we determine intent? So intent is always a hard thing in any crime, because if you do something, how do I know that you did it deliberately? And one of the things we say with genocide is it's a collective crime. So if you intend to murder a person, even because of that person's membership in a group, it's maybe not the same as intending to destroy the grouper in whole or in part. So that question of how we connect your acts, which I think is your question, to how we connect what you mean to do is perpetually a hard question at law. And we have these other ways, other areas of law have developed methods to measure. So we can say these kind of, these kind of actions, we equate to a certain kind of intent. One of the things we see in international criminal law, for example, is sometimes we can ask, not just is it deliberate, because how do you know, right? What do you, in, like Lena said, it's very rare that someone comes out and says beforehand, we intend to destroy the group or in whole or in part. But is it foreseeable that what you're doing will destroy the group in whole or in part? Um, is it likely that what you're doing will destroy the group in whole or in part? And all of those different ways of constructing intent are, are possible and are explored in international law. So not to, I don't want to go too much yeah. on with the law because I know it can be kind of dense. Mm -hmm. But one of the things that's interesting is that before the International Criminal Court, constructions of intent have been very narrow so far. Mm. So that's where some criticism of the court comes from. There have only been two concluded cases. In both of those cases, the court declined to find a state guilty of genocide. So, and there in one mm. of the cases, there was this establishment that in order to imagine what intent would be, I've got it um, here, it's this idea, in order to infer the existence of a pattern of conduct, it's necessary to show the, it's the only inference that could reasonably be drawn from the acts in question. So mm. this thing that's being done must mean that there's genocide. And that, if we interpret that in a way that there's only one possible idea and it's the destruction of this group in whole or in part, it will become very difficult to ever say that something's a genocide until we're well after the fact. Mm. And that's been criticized as being an unduly high bar so what Lena and I wrote about was this intervention by six states to try and challenge an interpretation of that high bar to show how other courts 
come with other patterns from circumstantial evidence that can demonstrate intent in ways that are something you could see on the ground would be applicable, arguably, in the Gaza case. You bring me to my next point, Kirsten, because even um, in in the Gaza case, part of the argument for why this should not be interpreted as genocide from Israel is that it would mean something so much more serious. I mean, is there is that part of of the conservativeness of of the ICJ around mm-hmm. definitions of genocide that? It, it would mean some it would say something about the world that we're living in that perhaps you know as countries and I speak uh, sort of I ask the question more collectively that we're not mm-hmm. willing to contend with as global society that in fact genocide does still exist and we do still have modern examples of genocide mm. I, I guess maybe I can start and then maybe I can kick it over to Lena, who thinks about this maybe in slightly different ways. But for example, I think the case of Rwanda is sort of one of our warning cases. When when the Rwanda genocide was unfolding, countries were very reticent to use the word genocide because that would trigger all of these obligations that countries have under the Genocide Convention. It's got many, many signatories. Most of the countries of the world have signed on. Everyone agrees that this is a terrible crime. And if you recognize a genocide, then each state that recognizes genocide has an obligation to stop it. And that, I think, would be contrary to the purpose of international law. States sign a genocide convention recognizing how problematic the crime is in order to prevent genocide. So I personally am not very convinced by this notion that somehow trying to establish that genocidal violence is going on would somehow make genocide less serious. I think it's quite the opposite. Yeah, if I should um, add something. So maybe um, for for the listeners, just to clarify that Justin is a lawyer and I'm a political scientist. So we've written various things together where we try and bring our two perspectives in. Um, But what I wanted to say, so I think we, we call genocide the crime of crimes. And that's a good thing, but maybe it's also a bad thing. So, of course, it's a good thing because it signals that it's extremely and utterly unacceptable to humanity and to every state that wants to be considered legitimate. So it's it's a good thing that we call genocide the worst thing that can happen. But then on the other hand, because it's a crime of crimes, it's also very... Um, it's also such a powerful um, label that it can delegitimize the existence of the state. And that's, of course, also <laughs> could be useful if, if the state um, sort of um, acts in, in, in ways that are so unacceptable. But on the other hand, it also allows Israel then to make this argument that what South Africa is trying to do is to basically undermine the the legitimacy of the Israeli state. Um, And I think what is interesting about the case, and and particularly that South Africa has raised this case, is that South Africa has actually shown the world in its own political history that it can change. Um, Mm -hmm. So it can sort of change in very fundamental ways and still exist as a state, but as Mm -hmm. a new kind of state. Because I think what what 
at the moment, the Israeli government is um, is saying that anyone who criticizes them wants to um, undermine the existence of the Israeli state. But I think the conversation needs to go to a place where we can talk about the existence of Israel, but not a genocidal state or a state that um, uh, has apartheid policies, right. but uh, a, a more rule of law state, and then also talk about um, a state uh, of Palestine, basically. All right. yeah. Lena mm. Kirsten will continue the conversation in a moment. It's time for the latest news headlines. Hashtag SFM Talking Point. We continue the conversation on the talking point. We're looking at the definition of genocide. Uh, Kirsten Bree Carlson in, is an associate professor, international law at Roskilde University. Lena Engbo Gizel is also an associate professor of global political sociology at the same institution. Kirsten, I want to speak about the um, the the case, including the Gambia. Um, against Myanmar because you are using this particular case as an example and as a benchmark for number one definitions of genocide but also what has been contested um, within that particular case of the use of, of the word genocide to describe it. Absolutely. Um, Lena and I wrote about this case when it happened uh, when it was filed, because it it was very exciting, it was um, it was totally novel. It was the first use of the genocide convention between two states who weren't in conflict with each other. It wasn't an add-on to a war that already existed there on different continents, and so this was a realization of the potential of the genocide convention. So again, this old uh, standard treaty of international law that's got big ideas, but is very infrequently used. It was the first application where one country said, we, as members of the human community, exercise our jurisdiction against another state with whom we have no particular relation because of the genocidal violence that state is engaging in. And that's called erga omnis jurisdiction. It's this capacity for any state that's a member to bring a case against any other state because of the notion that genocide uh, concerns all of us. Um, so that was a very particular, that's a very particular case. It's still ongoing. Provisional measures were um, were introduced by the International Court of Justice. Basically, Myanmar was told to cease and desist. We don't see much evidence of um, any difference on the ground, but that case is going forward. It's now four years old. So what happened in November was that six states made an intervention in that case because they're members of the treaty. So they're allowed to say, that the way that this case works out concerns them as well. And this is what Lena and I were writing about, because this intervention does some pretty interesting things in terms of how it insists on genocide's definition. So of course it doesn't change any law, genocide is defined by the Genocide Convention, but it takes care to look at other forms of law. So mostly cases that have come out of international criminal courts that have concerned genocide. It looks at the findings of those courts and then it applies those findings and the consequences to those of those findings to the Genocide Convention. And it says some pretty interesting things about how genocide should be interpreted. And two of the ones that we sort of jumped out for us, or maybe we think are the most significant, are one, how um, the, the question of 
sexual and gender-based violence, what that means, and violence against children. And one of the more interesting things, again, without getting too legal about this, but it comes back to this question of intent. We always have to figure out how does one establish intent? And what this six states argue in the Gambia versus Myanmar case is that certain kinds of acts demonstrate intent. So when you have sexual and gender-based violence, there's no military advantage to that. That can't be defended in the laws of war. So therefore, when you see that kind of activity, it's an indication that there may be genocidal intent. Likewise, crimes against children. So they, again, they, they connect this also to the question of serious bodily harm, the destruction of a group, the conditions of life meant to brought around, bring about dis destruction. So they take it back to other elements in, in the definition of genocide, but it's a very it's a very interesting and neat application of already established case law sure. to in in essence extend the possibility of how circumstantial evidence can be seen as genocidal. Lena, part of what the both of you write about is also then at least from this intervention by these six countries that one should rather be looking at the patterns. Um, under which certain behaviors can be interpreted as leading um, to, to, to genocide. How difficult is, is that to do? And, and, and I guess the, another question would be, um, you know, how much of, 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 of those patterns would one be, mm -hmm. be looking at for it to say, well, since we've established um, maybe three issues around uh, destruction, as you've highlighted, Kirsten, around gender-based mm -hmm. violence, around impact of children. Now that we have these three, then we can say, yes, it's enough for us to say these are patterns that um, have, have, have led to the definition of, of genocide in other cases. Yes. So, um, so the, the intervention by the six states is not, um, doesn't sort of provide um, a very sort of fixed recipe or like um, a way in which we can sort of tick certain boxes and then we know that there's genocidal intent. It doesn't do that. But what it does is that it basically draws on international criminal law, which has found genocidal intent in a way less or more readily than, um, than has any of the rulings um, of which there are only two, as Justin said, so far by the International Court of Justice. So in a sense, it's sort of, it's, it's, it's very creative in it, in, in the sense that it wants to um, lower the threshold, particularly when it comes to children, for when something can be considered to indicate genocidal intent. So and and um, and because the threshold has been so high, um, we see it as a way in which the International Court of Justice, if it if it agrees with this intervention by the six states, would perhaps apply a slightly lower threshold for when um, there can be said to be indications of uh, genocidal in, intent. Oh, I don't know yeah. if that answered your question. <laughs> yes, yes, it does. And, and, and I guess perhaps the, the next question, uh, before I go to, to some of our callers who want to engage with you, um, mm -hmm. do we need a fixed criteria 
or is it about keeping it as flexible as possible? Because again, um, you know, the nature of how conflicts uh, takes, take place mm -hmm. are, are ever evolving. Is it more about mm -hmm. developing the, the jurisprudence than it is about having a set criteria? Uh, Lena, I'll mm -hmm. kick it off with you. Yeah, yes. No, so, so I'm not sure that like a, a checklist approach would be useful exactly for the reasons that you say that, that uh, war and violence takes so many different forms and also is carried out in a particular context of, uh, of hate or, 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 um, or conflict. So, so I think it's, it's useful that in any case they would look at the, the specifics and the particular of that case. Um, um, so, so, the, so there's also um, a disadvantage to making it very uh, fixed and, and checkbox-like. Um, yeah. All right. So, Kirsten, so, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. Sorry. No. Yeah. That was it. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. Kirsten. No, I I totally agree with Lena. I think that's the right way to see it, and I think the that setting out principles is also part of what. Um, ideally, jurisprudence and international law can allow us to do. It's a space where we can discuss ideas. So here, when you start with the genocide convention, even the term genocide, it comes out of the Holocaust. It comes out of the of a reification, an acknowledgement of a certain kind of violence that impacts not just the people who are subject to it, but all of us. And so I think by having by moving away from a notion of a checklist and continuing to think about what's the purpose, what kind of violence do we want to make sure isn't engaged in with these laws, that's how we can more truly realize the, the promise of international law. All right. Th thanks for that, Kirsten. Let me go to Mike. Mike, you're in Middleburg. Good morning. Morning, Kathy, and your guest. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. Yeah, perhaps before the, the, the ICJ judges uh, issue a verdict, they should uh, send a delegation to PASA to do inspection in local, just to acquaint themselves with how infrastructure has been destroyed and the many bodies which are still not accounted for, still trapped in the rubble. And let alone that the, the warlord continues unabatedly killing everybody indiscriminately. I think that alone will be enough, Katie, uh, you know, to really say this is a genocide. And uh, yes, I listened to your guests, they put their facts, but I think inspection in local would go a long way. Uh, there is tangible evidence. There is conclusive evidence that uh, this is genocide, the destruction of infrastructure, the continuation of the, of the war, indiscriminate killing of everybody. That alone is enough. Thank you. All right, Mike. Kirsten, is that something we see often, the, the, the ICJ going on location to do its own investigation? So the ICJ, like any international court, has a has a problem that it can only do as much as states permit it to do. It, it's the world court. It's the UN's court. It works with the cooperation of states. So the UN, for example, is on the ground in Gaza and is producing reports. Then, as I understand it, those reports will be contested. They certainly were in the Gambia versus Myanmar case. So there are questions as to whether or not uh, is a UN report uh, officially, is it complete enough? Is it neutral enough? Does it somehow advantage one of the sides? Um, 
so but the icj judges themselves uh, are limited in terms of what they can do they're responding to information that comes in all right if, if thanks can, for that yes yeah. yes lena you can yeah yeah if i can add so so mike there's something else going on as well in this international uh, judicial space at the moment which maybe speak a bit more to what you're talking about because another court which is the international criminal court which i think we know a lot about in africa and in south africa they also are carrying out an ongoing investigation so they have an independent prosecutor um, but i know that south africa together with other states have have also made a referral to the international criminal court so they um, are expected to carry out investigations on site yeah, and then if I could just jump back in and say all that, of course, is correct. But then the interesting difference is that the International Criminal Court can eventually indict individuals, right? Yeah. And then those people are put on trial and that can result in jail time. So that's also a, a real difference between these two areas of law where one can potentially say this person is guilty of this thing and then assign them jail time versus what the International Court of Justice is doing, which is sure. saying there's a state policy and demanding that the state change its policy. All right. Th thanks for that. Vuiso, are you in Parktown North? Good morning. Morning, Kathy, and your guest. Uh, thanks for taking my call. Um, you know what? Uh, I think we as other nations, you know, that have all suffered this name, this thing called, you know, so I'll call it in Kiswahili, though I'm close, I'm alpha. You know, the Western powers, the Western nations have committed so much, you know, ma'afa in the continent of Africa, the Native American, Aborigines, uh, transatlantic uh, uh, slavery to uh, trans-Sahel slavery. They don't want us to use that word, you know, because it's their word, it's their law. They invented the law, they invented the word, and therefore they are going to contest it. So we need to get our own word that will equate because they have done so much damage in this continent and they don't want to account for it. But uh, there were genocide they did long before the Holocaust and they don't want it to be called genocide. They want it to be called something else. They killed whatever, I don't know. Well, oh, you know. Okay. But the fact is that we must just move away from contesting this word. It's their word, it's their law. They control it, they own it. Okay. It's about power, so leave it. All right, Vuiswa. Yanush in Cape Town, very briefly for me, Yanush, go for it. Hi, hi, Kitty. Hi to the panel. Very briefly, we know about the Germans who committed genocide against Jewish people, you know, mm -hmm. concentration camps, also gate, also, also ghetto, and uh, and other crimes committed against not only Jewish, but also the Slovaks and, and Gypsies. And that was very clear because it was, you know, very visible. Also, I'm glad that Mike phone because he's so got one also one standard uh, protecting one one of the site. And Mike, I don't know whether you know, but the, the Russians also committed genocide because they they captured the Polish people, all the people, men and women, and they sent them to Siberia to die. So maybe you know, maybe you know from the history, or maybe you don't know. Okay. Talking about the, so talking about the Gaza, can okay. we call call the can we call the Gaza as a genocide? Maybe I don't know the rules, but the point is that because of the the get of course destruction, killing that's terrible against humanity. Uh, because no electricity, people living like in, in the shacks, 
on the street uh, and no electricity, no water. Yanus? Yanus, unfortunately, we're going to have to leave it there, but I think you've you've made the point. Uh, Lena, Kirsten, I've literally got 45 seconds um, to mm. before we wrap up this conversation. So let me begin with you then, Kirsten, and perhaps reflect on what our listeners was, were saying. Yeah, I would just say that there is, I, I think the second caller who was asking about, you know, why the Western, this is a Western word and the Western powers want to keep this word and have their own definitions. And there certainly is a great deal of colonialism in international law. I guess I'm an international law optimist. So I'm a big believer in the power of a word to be taken over and to become something that can empower all of us. So what I see in the Gambia intervention is the possibility of an extension of ideas that we can all work with. Okay, Lina? Um, yeah, uh, I also, I I think, yes, um, it would be great. We can also call it MAPA, um, I think, but, but we should not ascribe a term to um, a particular region of the world, but rather see it as, um, as sort of all of us are capable of um, carrying it out and be victims of it, but also to hold those who did it to account. Um, so I think it's, yeah, I agree totally with Justin that these two cases, the Aga Omnes cases by Gambia and South Africa are super exciting. Um, because they actually speak in a sense on behalf of um, a greater part of humanity. All right. Let me thank you both for your time, Lena Kirsten, for um, this conversation. We've also uh, come to the end of our program for today. Up next is the book reading.